0: According to legend, about 1,000 years ago, King Canute brought his throne down to the seashore, set it up, and sat in it and commanded the seas to not rise for the tide to remain at ebb tide. He commanded that the seas not get his royal shoes wet. And you can imagine how that worked out for King Canute. As the water rose up around his ankles, he moved his throne back farther, and he said these words. The king leapt backwards, saying, Let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings. For there is none worthy of the name, but he whom heaven, earth, and the sea obey by eternal laws. He then hung his gold crown upon a crucifix and never wore it again to the honor of God, the Almighty King. Foolishness, eh? For who controls the seas? I had a similar experience personally when we took our children to the ocean many years ago when they were quite small. And being a Midwestern flatlander, anything that would rise up to three feet, if it was a wave, would be a pretty heady thing to observe. And so, with my children watching, I waded out into the surf up to my waist, and I held my hand out, and I forbade the waves from splashing upon my important personage. And, of course, my children giggled with delight as I was bowled over by the next wave. They were giggling because of my impotence, right? And they were also giggling at the very presumption that I would presume to be able to command the seas to halt. Because we know one thing, don't we? Whoever it is that controls the seas, it's not us, right? It's not you, and it's not me. The ancient Hebrews, though not a seafaring people, understood this. And if you turn to Psalm 107, at the reference I just gave you, I'm going to read you part of that Psalm beginning in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed, and they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. So this is the backdrop as we come to the final section of the book of Acts, chapters 27 and 28. And we run across in chapter 27, this standalone chapter that's drenched, pardon me, by the author in great detail as he chronicles the seafaring adventure of the Apostle Paul and his loyal friends. I use the word anomaly because John Stott put it this way, why is so much real estate in this narrative given to what is surely a great story but with so little to add to the overall message of this book? Now we know the basics of the story, most of us, and we're going to read it in its entirety during the course of this message. But in a nutshell, Paul has languished in various prisons for two and a half or more years. He's defended himself before kings and priests and lawyers and Roman magistrates against vague charges, patently untrue and without evidence. Yet, Paul has been told in chapter 23 by the Lord, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. And we also know from chapter 25 that he, as a Roman citizen, has appealed his case to Caesar himself, and as Festus states with some apparent finality, to Caesar you have appealed To Caesar you shall go. But Stott's question still stands. What is this story about? Some have said that it's an allegory, where the ship represents the church, and the sea and the storms represent the various trials that have beset the church over the years. The journey to Rome represents the corruption and decadence and decay of the church as it came under the sway of the Roman Catholic religion and all of that makes my eyes glaze over. And I think it is inconsistent with the nature of the text, particularly when we understand that Luke, for Luke, there is no detail that's too small, no authenticating fact that would make this seem to be a generalized allegory. So what is it then? Is it the story of the Superman Is it kind of like an ancient version of Forrest Gump, where Paul is in successive seasons of life, a scholar, a tradesman, a lawyer, a fugitive, an evangelist, wanderer, prisoner, and a seafarer here? Is this the story of another chapter in a travelogue? Is it a story of human endurance against all odds, is it a biblical version of Homer's Odyssey where we hitch our wagons to the rising star of the Apostle Paul and vicariously root for our hero, acknowledging with the tip of the hat that there is a God behind the scenes orchestrating his every move and pulling the strings to make all of this happen. Kind of like if you're a Star Wars fan, which I'm not, it's, it's where they fly around in space. And you have your heroes and you... And you Um, enjoy the story and, and you understand that vaguely in the background of the story there's this thing called the force which has little to do with the actual story but yet provides the explanation for most of what's going on and explains most of the motivations for all of the flying around in outer space. And the truth is that all of these things are true to a degree and the reason is because the reader and the hearer bring our own frame through which we fall in love with and appreciate the story every time we read it. But what I'd like to suggest here this morning is that this story is, among other things, the pointed story of your lives and mine, for believer and unbeliever. It's writ large, it's underlined with bold font, with pointed grace all over the place, And as we begin to see that, we might well be driven to our knees in tears this morning. And then raised in tear-filled worship as well. That's a lot to ask, right? And although it's our story, it's in the end a story of gospel rescue that is so incalculably vast, meaning cosmic in scope, that our own story becomes mercifully muted and properly proportioned in the beauty of a gospel salvation wrought by the hand of the one who controls the frightening chaos of the oceans upon which we travel. Anybody here today traveling on an ocean and it's chaotic and at times can scare you to death? If you are not here today, then there's a disconnect between your life and mine, right? My plan is to read this text in three sections and make some observations along the way and draw some conclusions on what I hope may just be some life-changing applications. But first, let me set up some road markers along the way. If you turn to page 936 in your pew Bibles, you'll come across chapter 27 in the book of Acts. And it's bracketed, actually, by verse 1 and by verse 44. And I want to begin with the consideration briefly of those verses, and then I will move into reading the text. The story begins in verse 1, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy. They delivered Paul and some prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. The very first phrase is interesting to me the way it's phrased is interesting when it was decided it doesn't indicate who decided when it was decided that smacks to me of bureaucratic engines of a justice system grinding relentlessly down to a conclusion when it was decided the main point there we don't necessarily know who uh, signed the order right But what we do know is that Paul didn't decide, did he? When it was decided, Paul is not the master of his fate, nor is he the captain of his soul. We know that for sure, and that is my first observation this morning. Newsflash, we are not the master of our fate, neither are we the captain's of our souls. That ought to get an amen from somebody here. Right? Can we praise the Lord that we are not the masters of our fate or the captains of our soul? Because if we were, every one of us would be shipwrecked in the end. right? The last verse is a closing bracket as well, and it goes like this. And so it was that all were brought safely to land two things about this. One is the story concludes gently and with a finality that has a satisfaction to it. And the second thing is that it does not end with the words, can you anticipate with me, happily ever after, right? Which leads me to my second observation, which is simply this, that there is a happily ever after, and it's now, but not yet, Right? So I'm going to read now from verses 1 through verse 15. And there's nothing magical about why I'm stopping at verse 15 except it helps to break it into about three different packages. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius and embarking on a ship of Adramitium which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, which was near which was the city of Lacia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I believe that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there now when the south wind blew gently Supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. A couple things to begin with. Did you notice how many proper names are mentioned here? It's interesting to me, by my count, there are 18 proper names of places and persons listed in the first 15 verses. And that's characteristic of Luke, he's not concocting a fable for us. This route can be traced today to a large degree. And second, I'm interested in the character of Julius the Centurion. He figures in this, in this voyage from beginning to end, and it's developed throughout here what we've read. He has the authority to help or to hinder the Apostle Paul. He is wise enough to be gracious to him, wise enough to be kind to Paul, it says. He has the authority to commandeer ships at sea. That ship is where we're going to transfer to now. He also has the experience and the wisdom to assess the character and the integrity of his primary prisoner, Paul. But he makes a nearly fatal mistake in verses 10 through 12, because the season for safe sailing is slipping away, and the pressure brought on by haste nearly kills them all, because the pilot and the owner and the commander did not want to overwinter in an uncongenial harbor. They did not listen to Paul's words, and so they took a chance. They cast their fates upon the sea. I love how Matthew Henry puts it, and by the way, If you ever are looking for a commentary that just is wonderful for its devotional quality without being technical, it is great. Here's how he says what he says. They, referring to the captain and the pilot and the owner, they ran upon a mischief to avoid an inconvenience as we often do. And that's my next observation. Do not run upon a great mischief to avoid a small inconvenience. Is this beginning to sound like our story? When it was decided that, for how many of us did we see the train of a trial coming down the tracks before it slammed into us at 100 miles an hour? Do we live lives of perpetual haste where wise judgment is clouded by the tyranny of the urgent? That's ever-pressing. I want to give you an illustration of this There's a wonderful book out there called Becoming Elizabeth Elliot. And I would highly recommend it to any of you. She was the wife of uh, martyred missionary Jim Elliott, who in the mid-50s was killed along with four other missionaries witnessing to the Wadani people. The book is about the journey of Elizabeth Elliot in the jungle with the newborn baby and how she navigates life in the midst of that trial but there's a wonderful story in the book that refers to her husband Jim who in the late forties was a Wheaton College student and the story goes that he was in a car not driving he was a passenger with four other Wheaton College students equally zealous to serve the Lord with every word and every minute of their lives they were heading north on President Street and getting ready to cross the tracks when the gates started to come down. <laughs> Donnell, you know this story, right? The gates started to come down, and being 20-year-old young men with all the wisdom of a 20-year-old young man multiplied by five, which would be less than multiplied by, by one, they decided that the best thing they could do as an act of stewardship was to try to beat the train. How many minutes of their lives in ministry would be lost waiting for that train. And so they decided to beat the train and they pulled across the tracks but the driver in his 7,500 pound land arc with a clutch popped the clutch at the wrong time and the train stalled on the tracks. He tried to get it started again to get off the tracks and couldn't do it. His trembling fingers and trembling feet just did not obey the clear impulses of his mind and experience. At the last second all five jumped out of the car and rolled and somersaulted and cartwheeled to safety and miraculously they all survived. Not so much for daddy's car. What is the point? Don't run upon a great mischief in order to avoid a small inconvenience. Our next uh, observation is that our trials will drive us to places we have never been, and to places that we have never intended to go. Can anybody resonate with that? Have you had a trial that has taken you to places you've never been? In verse 14, it says this, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. It's like our own stories. When a trial comes, our first impulse Reasonably so is to fight, is to seek another diagnosis and another diagnosis and another diagnosis. And well, we might, we brace ourselves, we get our affairs in order, we deny the reality, we shore up our resources, but when the wave comes, it will often hit hard and with a force and an immediacy that we never anticipated. And we, like the ship, are driven along to places we never intended to go. Now, before we move on to the next section, which is verses 16 through 32, I want to make just a few miscellaneous observations that are interesting to me, and I think will help us um, understand the flavor of this story. First, Paul was, by some accounts, the most experienced seafarer on the ship. He had been in numerous shipwrecks before. He had traveled, by some commentator's estimate, some 3,500 miles by sea. And his words of counsel would surely have been worth hearing. Also, reading that he changed ships is interesting because the grain freighter from Alexandria was one of a steady stream of ships whose task was to feed the Roman capital from the granary of Rome, which was Egypt. Its size was enormous, and not just for its day, the oceans did not see larger ships until the early 1800s, which is just amazing to me. And later on in the story, we're going to learn that it's, in addition to its massive cargo, it held 276 souls, roughly the number of people in our sanctuary this morning. So let me read, beginning at verse 16. Running under the lee of a small island called Kauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, and then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard, With their own hands, and when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss, yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you. All those who sail with you, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. And a little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, You cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Wow, where do we begin in this section? You know, I was talking to Kip before the service. If you were to wring this chapter dry of everything that could encourage us or challenge us or tell us about the God to whom we belong, we could preach this chapter for a year. It's just amazing. So where do we begin I want to begin actually with this pesky little lifeboat that keeps popping up in the story. Coming under the somewhat protected leeward shore of the island of Cauda, they do two things. First, they secure the ship's lifeboat. And By the way, the, the observation is this, be wary of the lifeboat, and we'll see why in a moment. And by the way, if I ever go on a cruise, which is highly unlikely, I'm going to count the lifeboats, and I'm going to count the number of seats in the lifeboats, and then I'm going to want to check the ship's manifest, and I want that to equal. But it is a small comfort because I have read in studying for this that it's almost impossible to launch a lifeboat from a sinking ship, and it is also impossible to launch a lifeboat from a ship in a hurricane, meaning you only launch a lifeboat when the waters are calm Right? And when uh, there's no storm. Presumably, no need for the lifeboat. So if you ever need a, a definition of irony, that's it. That's your illustration right there. The second thing they do is they undergird the ship. This involves probably two things. They somehow wrap the hull with cables or stout ropes just to hold this grain-filled hulk together in the midst of the storm. They also, and this is just interesting to me, they may have above decks run a cable attaching the fore to the aft. And it's fun to use nautical terms, even when I just barely know what they mean. Fore to aft. The reason being, they don't want the ship to ride over a wave and then break its back coming down the other side. And by tightening it all up, they're able to have a better shot. Well, they know one thing. The storm is gathering in intensity as they are being driven before the wind. But you notice that the lifeboat comes into the picture again. First part of what I read, they raise it up and secure it, right? Verse 30, Paul tells the captain that this boat is nothing more than a tempting means of secret and fatal escape. How difficult must it have been to cut the lines with a hatchet and watch it drop into the maelstrom below. It's interesting also, so far has the authority of the Apostle Paul risen by this point in the story. His his word has risen in value to the captain and crew, and this too is part of our story. We flirt with, some examples, we flirt with financial irresponsibility because we're waiting for the lifeboat of an anticipated career change. Or maybe the long-awaited inheritance Many years ago at a prayer meeting, not at this church, but a a young woman came in, and um, we broke up into small groups, and she made this confession. She said, I have on occasion shared personal requests, but if I was being totally honest, I would tell you that I never share a personal request unless I can already see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's amazing that you could be that honest, it seems to me. And why is that? Because, man, you want the lifeboat, right? It's dangerous to be on a ship without a lifeboat, but the shadow of the lifeboat may become a roadblock to our rightful surrender and keep us off our knees. I remember my great, or my step-grandfather, his name was Arnie, and we loved Arnie. He had married my grandmother when he was 80 years old and so was she. Um, her, her husband, my grandfather, had died about two weeks before, and she married this gentleman a couple of weeks after. And I think in her defense, she would have said, hey, the clock is ticking here. And if we're going to make this happen, we're not going to have a long engagement. And we came to love Arnie, and he lived another 20 years. And at a nursing home where he was celebrating his 100th birthday, we all gathered just to congratulate Arnie on his Arnie had no interest in this party at all. He was not interested. In fact, I suspect he did not consider this a blessing at all. What he really wanted was to go home and be with Jesus. But sitting there at the party, and we're all cajoling him and trying to get him to sing Silent Night in German, which he could still do, um, he just kept murmuring to himself over and over. You know what he said? He said, I am not a good provider. He just kept repeating those words, I am not a good provider. You know what was happening there? For his whole life, he had, his lifeboat was the ability to put food on the table by the sweat of his brow and his lifeboat ran aground on the ship of old age and infirmity, and he was no longer able to be that provider. His lifeboat had failed him in the end. Well, the lifeboat was dashed upon the rocks, like I said, of old age and infirmity, and we loved him all the more for his brokenness. And it may have been that the cutting loose of the little lifeboat by the sailors was the hardest thing they did on this journey of many hard things. The next thing, I want to make an observation based on verse 20. And the observation is this. It is not faithless to cry out in our desperation to the Lord. I'm going to repeat that. It is not faithless to cry out in the desperation of our heart to the Lord. I was really struck by the incongruity of verse 20 that Luke here confesses that all of our hope of being saved was at last abandoned. It's strange because this sentiment was written by the man who had seen Paul and Silas freed from a Philippian jail by an earthquake. He had seen the power of God at work up close and personal. And did not Paul already know via his uh, vision back in chapter 23, that he would stand before Caesar. So on what basis did they abandon all hope of being saved, knowing that Paul was going to stand before Caesar one way or another? Maybe Luke was referring to everyone except the Apostle Paul. That may be true, but then why would they not have, have garnered some amount of hope from his steadfast courage and testimony? We can't know for sure, but what we can do is make a couple of observations. First of all, in chapter 23, and then here, when the angel speaks to Paul, what, how does he begin? Do not be afraid. Also, we know that Paul is not a stranger to the feeling of despair. If you go to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we read in verse 8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul is no stranger to the abandonment of hope. I'm going to take a risk here and and, uh, go off script for a moment. I I consoled a child in the hallway earlier today who came late because her parents left her at home. And uh, She was somewhat perturbed, and I said, you know, I was older than you when my parents left me at church and came home without me, and as a 12-year-old, I didn't know if they were going to come back. How absurd is that, right? I had abandoned all hope of being saved as I was left right on the steps outside of the Wheaton Public Library, knowing that I might never be reunited with my family ever again. I had abandoned all hope of being saved. Well... That fear and that sense of desperation, regardless of whether it's ill-founded or not, is a powerful force in our life, is it not? In fact, it may be the all-too-real tension of being human in the midst of trial. This is our story. I've said from the pulpit that every face in this place knows their place of suffering. And we do well to engage in the very human the ordained comfort that we can provide for one another. It has been said and misattributed to lots of famous people, be kind to everyone, for everyone is fighting a hard battle. Folks, I believe that to be true. And my experience as an elder here um, testifies to that. That humanness is not a sign of weakness, but it's a grace imparted to us to cause us to cry out to a God who hears, or as Exodus chapter 2 says so poignantly, that God heard the suffering of the people of Israel. God heard it, and God knew. Another observation has to do with what the angel said, where all of these men are granted to you. Wow, that's pretty extraordinary. It leads me to this observation. There is and ought to be an umbrella of protection. We see Paul rise up above the fear and exhaustion of his shipmates and cellmates. He can be heard above the noise of the storm, above the shouting and the cursing and the crying out to God that's happening all around him. And he urges them to do what? To take heart. To know that they will indeed survive this catastrophic event and that they, each of them, have been granted to him. Sounds kind of presumptuous, doesn't it? All you guys have been granted to me. If that's what the angel said to him. It's incredible, really, that he could alone speak with such clarity. And I, I am struck in the story at how Paul's voice here, especially in the latter half of the chapter, is the voice of clarity. How often have you been in a tough spot and it's the voice of clarity that brings the most comfort, even if it's a voice that speaks really bad news, right? To have the, uh, the, the doctor speak with a voice of clarity that, let, that lets you know exactly what's going on without sugarcoating it in language that makes it hard to to interpret. It reminds me of the great Samuel Johnson quote, Depend upon it, sir. When a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. The amazing thing is that these, these shipmates listened to Paul, to this prisoner in chains. So on what basis does he offer hope? It's pretty simple, really. An angel of God has spoken to him. Notice Paul's description. The God to whom I belong and whom I worship. His voice of clarity and confidence is the only such voice on the ship. And I'm really struck by his words. God has granted to you, this is what the angel said, all those who sail with you. It's as if this umbrella of safety has been extended to those in his company. This is underscored a few verses later when some of the crew seek to lower the lifeboat and escape. And Paul says, if they go, you collectively cannot be saved. It's as if he's saying, you have been given to me under my umbrella aboard this ship. Paul's stock has risen to the point where his word on the lifeboat, upon his word, the lifeboat is cut loose rather than be allowed to be the instrument of their destruction. It's worth pausing to think about this matter of an umbrella of safety around Paul. Could that be said of us, do you think? Is there an umbrella of safety around you and me? It ought to be, for sure, right? And it's a sword that cuts both ways. And I want to, first of all, speak to our friends here, either on the stream or here in the sanctuary, who don't belong to Christ It may well be that a grace has been given to you, a particular grace, if your spouse is a believer. See it. And it may also be that you might thank whatever gods there may be for the safety in the company of a godly boss or a godly partner a co-worker, neighbor, friend, family. And for believers this morning, the other side of the sword is this. Are people safe and cared for in our midst? Is this place, Grace Church, a place of safety and peace? Do children come through our doors visibly relaxed? Knowing that there is safety here. This place is an oasis of peace in a world with scary waves. What better measuring stick of our own transformation is there? And may I add that this is precisely the reason why we actually care about having a robust child protection policy. I thought about whether I should include that in there because I don't just want to pop the balloon of our our spiritual apprehensions. But there is a reason why we care about those things. So before we move on to the next and final section, I want to reflect just a bit on verse 29, which says, And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Observation number eight. In the face of great trial, we do well to cast four anchors and wait for dawn. I was struck by this because the sailors did everything they could, and then they knew what to pray for. Right? To set four anchors from the bow was their, or maybe it was from the stern. Stern. Thank you. Which is which? (laughs) Was their attempt, the back. Thank you. Was their attempt to slow the relentless advance of the ship upon the unseen but ever waiting to devour rocks. It was an attempt to slow the game down. The point is this, when trial comes as it surely will, in all of its overwhelming force, to cast your anchors deeply in the strong and solid word of God, in the faithful care of the people of God, and then to cry out for blessed dawn. The night will not last forever, and it will be followed by a sunrise that might surprise and amaze you. Another observation, a simple one, from verses 33 to 35 is to take heart in the company of your shipmates. After urging them to take some nourishment, Paul says this, And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Do these words remind you of anything? Raise a hand if it rings a bell. They are almost identical to Jesus' words at the feeding of the 5,000, in Matthew 15. And they're certainly reminiscent of Jesus' words at the institution of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, where he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. It's difficult to believe that Luke isn't trying to tell us something here. So you can imagine my disappointment when I looked up on my Bible notes to see what it might have to say to illuminate the why of this passage and why it's so reminiscent my Bible notes simply said this was not a celebration of the Lord's Supper well thank you very much fair enough but it's surely not an incidental detail without poignant meaning for us is it what do the sailors and the passengers do it's simple they take a bit of food they thereby become encouraged all 276 of them, we can infer, and then they went to work. What did they do? They began dumping the cargo overboard. And ought that maybe be our best response to the Lord's Supper, which we will celebrate in a few minutes, to in this ordinance find encouragement for our souls and seek and find that encouragement together as a body. And then in the warmth of that encouragement, Head out for gospel work with a song in our hearts. May that be so for you and me today. And also, I'm interested, for no particular reason, other than because it's part of the story, the actions of the centurion here at the end of the story, in the presence of the courage of Paul, he himself becomes a man with clarity of vision, a leader among men, and so may we. The last observation before we conclude this morning is based on verses 43 through 44. Let me just read them for you. But the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. And that's my final observation. You just might be saved by the wreckage of your own life. That's a piece of irony, is it not? When the ship had to be abandoned, some swam for the beach and some floated to shore on bits and pieces of the wreckage and in a way, the broken vessel became the means of salvation for many. So let me ask you this question. Have the trials of your life helped to build the strong and present foundation upon which your life now rests? It's not a rhetorical question, but I won't ask you to raise your hands. I believe that if time permitted, we can put a mic stand right down there and line up going out the door to give testimony to the fact that it has been the wreckage of our lives that has been the instruments used by the Lord to provide great rescue as strange as that must surely sound. I have two things to conclude with this morning. The first is uh, strangely labeled from point A to point B. Now, the shortest distance between two points is what? A straight line. Well, not so much. In the economy of God, the, the, the shortest distance between Jerusalem and Rome took an extremely circuitous route. But nevertheless, it's a journey that takes Paul and the gospel from point A to point B. And I praise the Lord for that. Let me give you an illustration. In 1954, the great ocean liner, the SS United States, won the coveted blue pennant, awarded each year to the fastest passenger ship transit from New York to London. For decades, the blue pennant had been sought and awarded But 1954 was the last time. Any idea why that might be? Because 1954 was the year when the first jet airplane made the trip. Instead of three and a half days, it took five hours. It kind of made the blue pennant for the ocean liner feel just a little bit lame. And so today, you can go see the SS United States... Or it is languishing and rusting in a forgotten wharf in Philadelphia, looking for someone to buy it before it gets converted into scrap. So if you're looking for an investment, um, <laughs> that's, that's one idea. The predictions were that the large ocean-going passenger industry had gone the way of the horse and buggy, but not so. It reinvented itself as the cruise ship industry. The experience of the cruise would become the sole object. There was no need to go anywhere quickly because it would drop you off at the exact same place that it picked you up. And the whole goal of the ship was not to get you from point A to point B, but to keep you aboard the ship, spending money in every way they could think of for the entire length of your journey. The story in the book of Acts is a journey with a purpose. The journey is that of the gospel and it travels from Jerusalem to Rome inexorably like a freight train. We are on that gospel journey as well. We will not be the same people at the end as we were at the beginning. Praise God. In Christ, we may be sure that we will be like Paul and his companions, safely brought to land. It's a train that will not be derailed by any rock that falls from the sky. And what's more, it cannot even be derailed by our own complicity or our own distraction or grudging obedience. That's an amazing thing, if you think about it. It may be that we will move from point A to point B clinging like reaper sheep to the wreckage of our battered coracles. But even there, the flotsam and jetsam will be sanctified, as it were, put to holy use to enable us to complete the journey. That's the first takeaway. I just got to read you the words that Chief said just because and this is in the as Paul Rupsis will acknowledge this is in the third best book of the Chronicles of Narnia series The Voyage of the Dawn Treader Aboard this ship sailing to the utter east the ship is debating on whether or not to turn around and head back home but Chief says this My own plans are made While I can, I sail east in the dawn-treader. And when she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. And when she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world into some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. My second takeaway is a question, really, And it's begged by Paul's confession in verse 23, and it is this, to whom do you belong? Whom do you worship? There's kind of a presumption in the question, can you hear it? The presumption is this, that we all belong to someone and we all worship something. So let me ask a follow-up. Is the person to whom you belong worthy of all of your trust this morning? Is the object of your worship worthy of your prayer, your cries for help? The most important letter for us in this anomalous story is that there is one who is worthy, who commands the seas and commands the hearts of men, who will never leave us as orphans and who is even now praying for us and will one day come in dramatic rescue. For that reason, we don't need a happily ever after ending to each chapter of our story. That precious line has already been written. Does Paul live happily ever after as his journey progresses even in chapters not here recorded for us? Not so much. This is the end, a temporary deliverance. The real deliverance is yet to come. In this trial, his resolve is tested and proven And more importantly, his trust is validated 100 times over for him to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he will be brought safely from point A to point B. And so may we. Amen. And while I'm praying, could the uh, instrumentalists and the men serving communion come forward and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Father, it is a presumptuous thing to think that we can unpack your word when we can take a sounding but we'll never hit the depth of it. Father, may we walk out of here today encouraged at the exquisite care of the Lord Jesus Christ who commands the seas, who created the world and who is gentle and lowly and will come to rescue us with a certainty so great that it is as if the ending has already been written, which indeed it has. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.